0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu.
1: We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm J.P. Clark, Deputy Director for Academic Engagement at the Strategic Studies Institute and a War Room senior editor. One side's terrorist is another side's freedom fighter. Though a bit cliché, the phrase highlights the uncomfortable subjectivity that often exists at the edges of conflict and also suggests that the views and ideas about the law of war might, at least in part, reflect the relative strength or weakness of the observer. But all too often, we assume that our present national outlook on such matters has been both constant and universally shared. To help illustrate how this is not the case, we are joined today by Dr. Jonathan Gums, Senior Lecturer in Modern History at the University of Birmingham. Dr. Gums is primarily a historian of modern Central and Eastern Europe, but his interests also include global insurgency and counterinsurgency, and to today's topic, the regulation of war. Prior to his current position, he was an assistant professor at West Point and holds a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. John, thanks for coming on into the War Room.
0: Thanks for having me, JP.
1: So we're going to take our listeners to two points in time, the Hague Conference in in 1907 and then the Geneva Conference after uh, World War II. Well, we'll take these in turn. So first, give us just a quick summary of what the attendees at The Hague were trying to accomplish. Well, I think the first thing that those attendees at The Hague were trying to accomplish
0: was to actually get an agreement. That what had happened before in 1874 in Brussels was that it collapsed. The conference collapsed. There was just a declaration. There wasn't an agreement. So they wanted to get an agreement that would codify what was already customary international law. And, and so, that was main goal.
1: So they're trying to kind of uh, put, put some restraints upon aspects of, of warfare that uh, were, were viewed as being a little bit threatening or a little bit barbaric? They're trying to, uh, I think the broader, the broader point
0: here is, that, and especially certain delegates there, are trying to kind of, A, restrain warfare. Others are trying to contain warfare, which had, in their mind, kind of, broken out kind of dangerously uncontrolled in the franco-prussian war 1870 okay and, oh yeah go ahead and the, the idea was essentially to kind of maintain the boundary between soldiers and civilians and then it's part of this how do you regulate something like military occupation where right. this boundary is much more fluid and much more
1: dangerous all right, and so that's a perfect setup as we go forward. But uh, just uh, for a little background for the listeners, and so the Franco-Prussian War, the uh, the Prussian armies had succeeded fairly quickly in the field, but then there had been a period of resistance, and uh, and, and which kind of scared everybody, both the French and the, uh, the the what's going to become the Germans after the unification.
0: Right, that's that's right.
1: All right, so as you see, kind of set up, we have groups that are just trying to kind of go towards the road of getting rid of war altogether and others are just trying to make it a little bit more tidy and so we come into this within the conference one of the a couple of different uh, controversies but one of them is about occupation and resistance and with that background of the Franco-Prussian war there what was the sticking point and who kind of tended to come down on either side the sticking point were really uh, there were two main sticking points
0: one was what happens during an occupation, what was the law that applied during an occupation? How was a conquered territory or a subjected territory to be governed during an occupation? And who was to be governing that territory? That was one sticking point. And the question kind of came up over and over again, well, we need to leave the local government in place during an occupation because, in theory, this was an occupation that would only be temporary. War could not transfer sovereignty. That had to be agreed upon afterwards. And so even though a country was occupied, its sovereignty was left in place. So this was the notion of the so-called trustee occupation. So that's one sticking point. And there were a lot of disagreements over this because some countries thought well essentially what you're making happen here is to have the defeated country govern for the conqueror and this is essentially a betrayal of nationalism patriotism so on and so forth and you're trying to transform as what one delegate said transform what's fact
1: into law <laughs> and that was dangerous indeed and, and, and although to, to draw on that point, so dangerous for who? It was particularly dangerous for countries that thought that they would be conquered. Yes. Okay. Or defeated in a war. Right. And now, so how is this, this going to eventually be resolved as we have this discussion about what is the responsibility of, uh, of the, the, the side that is being conquered, mm-hmm. the side that is conquering, and the people who are caught up in this whole thing? How is this resolved?
0: Well, the people who are caught up in this whole thing, this is then the next kind of sticking point. In other words, so what, what are the limits of legitimate resistance? And there were a lot of discussions over this. Uh, some delegates wanted to essentially legitimize regi- resistance all the way through. Others said, well, we can only have resistance in the kind of gap between an advancing army and a retreating army. And at that point, civilians were allowed, if they conformed with the laws and customs of war, to take up arms against that advancing army. But other other countries also said, after we get past that point and we've established an effective occupation over a particular territory, at that point, resistance has to stop. And these countries were, of course, tending to be more of the kind of European land monarchies. So we're talking about Germany, Austria-Hungary, also Imperial Russia on this. And they were essentially facing off against Belgium to a large degree in the discussions over this.
1: So where you stand is where you sit. And in this case, it's uh, countries that are the the stronger versus the weaker. But I think in
0: some sense, JP, I think what we want to say here is that that it's like this in terms of, you know, it, it can be twisted in the sense of, well, it's, if you're stronger, you think this way, and if you're weaker, you think that way. But of course, we know that the British actually ended up supporting the Belgians at the conference, and so you know, Britain being the actually the premier power in the world at the time, in a strange way, act, actually kind of cuts against this logic of stronger versus versus weaker. There, it's really a kind of perspective on war itself. One mm. side believing that the only way to kind of contain war is to keep this highly clear boundary between soldiers and civilians. If you were to allow kind of fighting to take place after occupation and after it's been established, this boundary would essentially blur all over the place, and that this has to be stopped, because this is essentially a memory of the Napoleonic Wars in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, well, and as your article points out, uh, that it was also it was a bit strange that the British would take that in view of their own experience in South Africa, right? In what we you know commonly call the Boer Wars, which had had this long period of resistance, and so they were one of the last ones to have had this headache of of prolonged resistance. But yet you know they saw exactly. that as being legitimate. It's exactly. All right. Uh, now before we move on, one thing we should note about this early discussion within the Hague. This was not necessarily universally applicable uh, from the standpoint of these these powers? Who who was excluded from, from this in their idea? Well, at this point in time, in uh, kind of
0: European history, there was a very clear sense of what was called the circle of civilization or the realm of civilization. Civilization essentially applied to Europe, also, you know, the United States. Also, interestingly, I mean, one bigger project is, you know, There were countries that were kind of on the boundaries of civilization, and where exactly they stood was always a question. So the Ottoman Empire would be an example of this. But it was clearly demarcated, right? The right to be occupied was, in a sense, a right only reserved for a so-called civilized country.
1: Okay. Uh, Now, so... Things to be said, uh, one of the, the phrases that is used is contained warfare. And, and so it really kind of gets at this, this idea of, of the ideal of, of being able to put the things in, in the proper box. But then, as with many things, the Nazis messed all of this up because they had absolutely no intention. You know, for them, warfare was rewriting uh, the rules and sovereignty. So it wasn't going to be something that was done in a peace treaty later on. Once their armies moved through, they were going to be, uh, they were rewriting the rules and, and, and getting rid in, in a horrific fashion often of the, the, the local lo- ruling elites as opposed to what had, been, uh, what had been envisioned at The Hague. So when we get into Geneva, how did the experience of occupation and resistance to that Nazi regime affect and alter the perspectives on, on what was lawful?
0: Well, I would say several things here. First of all, uh, the, the National Socialists kind of believe that war is an elemental contest, right? An elemental contest which this kind of uh, international legal project connected with liberalism essentially covers over and, and deceives us in a way, right? It's not actually an elemental contest between various powers, and that's it. Right. So they, they kind of push through it that way. Then we get to Geneva. And at Geneva, and the years prior to Geneva, there's a concern, especially uh, among particular countries, those that have been occupied, in particular those occupied in, in Western Europe, that the memory of resistance be legitimized. Now, the memory of resistance, as opposed to the actual history of resistance, are kind of two different things. And we have to remember that resistance in these countries was often highly fraught. Uh, think especially in terms of you know, France, for instance. You know, in France, communists were really the kind of at the forefront of resistance to the National Socialists after the invasion of the Soviet Union. Of course, this there's a very different context post-World War II, right? with the Cold War involved. And in some senses, the, the idea is, I think among some of these countries, it's to kind of legitimate resistance, legitimate their memory of resistance, and do it in a kind of comfortable, easy sphere. And that's the sphere of international law, because doing it in the kind of sphere of domestic politics is actually much more complicated and much more fraught As the kind of experience of post war societies,
1: 1945 in Europe demonstrated. Indeed. And so to to kind of uh, restate that a little bit, because, and some of, we often just lose sight of how much turmoil there was in the, you know, after the war in terms of a lot of these Western, you know, Central, Eastern European, all across Europe, uh, the societies where, they were really coming together. So legitimating the resistance was not just an emotional imperative, although certainly there was that. And as they're trying to knit back to together societies and political systems that have been shattered, it, it has a, a domestic political overtone as well, as you said, that uh, in order to kind of rally around um, potentially a, a myth of, of national resistance. Um, so... So that is one pull that's driving some of the, uh, the, the European powers. But some others are also trying to hold on to their empires. And so how, what, what does resistance mean for powers like the U.K. and for France? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. I mean,
0: in some senses, you can divide countries in, at Geneva and in the preparatory conferences to Geneva between countries that have been occupied. And countries that had not been occupied. And in some senses, the interesting thing is that this cuts across the Cold War line in a lot of ways. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. in particular had, had different perspectives on international law to begin with. I mean, in some senses, they were very conservative approaches to international law. The U.S., after 1945, actually, uh, as they were starting to hear talk of the need for reform to international law in the light of the experience of the Second World War actually says, we, we actually don't have to change much at all. We just have to work around some of these kind of, a few of these little problems and make some alterations, but we don't have to change much at all. The UK, of course, remember by the time we get to the late 40s is dealing with various post-colonial insurgencies and you know places like Malaya and so on and so forth. Uh, and they are concerned that alterations to the law at Geneva will affect their own suppression of these insurgencies because it's a question of whether or not the realm of civilization still applies or not. The more the realm of civilization breaks apart and it applies to the whole world, the more problematic it is for a country like the UK. The ironic thing is that the French did not believe that this would apply to their insurgencies, in part because they still believed that this kind of civilizational imperative
1: existed. Fascinating. So, and this is an interesting, in in so many of the nationalities after World War One, and Versailles had kind of come to the table. And they were really believing that you know the Wilson's fourteen points were was was going to be equally applicable, and then obviously you know there had been a, a large caveat attached to that, at least in within the minds. But so there's this because uh, we, we we tend to think that it, our current view that of course international law truly is international. Uh, has been around for a while, but so we're at a transition stage. You think in Geneva, where uh, some sides are starting to realize that they really have to apply these things universally, and others don't. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think
0: that's a fair statement.
1: That's a fair statement. And the ironic
0: thing, and another ironic thing at Geneva, is that many of the newly independent countries, so let's say a country like Burma, is actually very concerned about allowing resistance to occupation or allowing kind of, let's say, guerrilla warfare, because they themselves are so uncertain about their control over their own territory.
1: Fascinating. Now, so what was the the resolution uh, at Geneva within the conventions?
0: Well, at Geneva conventions, the key article in this respect was Article 4 on the treatment relative to prisoners of war. And what it did was this. It extended prisoner of war status to members of other militias and members of other volunteer corps including those of organized resistance movements belonging to a party to the conflict and operating in or outside their own territory even if this territory is occupied. So what does that do? Essentially what it does is it removes in an international legal sense the notion of risk. Which had always been around in resistance to occupation. I mean, it's not that all resistance to occupation would have to be crushed, but there was risk attached to it if you undertook it. This, in a sense, removes that notion of risk to resistance to occupation.
1: The, uh, you know, kind of going back to The Hague a little bit, you know, the, the lawyerly bit is fascinating. You'd, you'd reference that. Uh, particularly, it was, very, it was fairly clear that a civilians had organized ahead of the occupying army coming in. Everybody kind of realized that that was okay. And then there was this gray zone as the lawyers are trying to figure out exactly, you know, how far into an occupation, you know, resistance no longer becomes uh, um, uh, legal but then, so G- the Geneva Conventions gets away with that distinction completely. So to drive this down to the lowest possible common denominator, as we have, you know, the Wolverines of Red Dawn <laughs> under under the Hague Conventions, because they had, you know, not organized ahead of time to resist, you know, the Cubans and the Russians, uh, they were kind of within a gray zone. However after the Geneva Conventions, even if they organize and start resistance afterwards, then they should be treated as prisoners of war rather than executed summarily as bandits or anything like or that. Or even arrested. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause they're you know, they're not combatants. And so, okay. Um, so I, I think that we can see, uh, particularly from our own vantage, there are some advantages to this older notion of contained warfare, uh, particularly for larger powers. So, what are the implications for the United States in an era of counterinsurgency and small wars that we've we've we have this change? And in your article, you you point out uh, there's probably a uh, there's at least. There's definitely a correlation and there's some sort of causation involved with these larger changes in uh, geopolitics and international law and entering into the, you know, the the era of counterinsurgency. So what should we draw from this is particularly a lot of our, you know, United States military officers are listening to this.
0: Well, I mean, I think oftentimes in the way we talk about international law we like to believe that it's a question of international law being on the side of kind of weak powers right international law is a kind of uh, a weapon of the weak right and and if you think of the most kind of kind of extreme way of, that one could talk about this from a perspective of strong power is to say, like, we have to throw off the shackles of international law because you know, we, have, we have to uh, handle these difficult situations and international law doesn't re- recognize this, so on and so forth. And that, and that way, you know, we kind of tend to think of international law in that way as a weapon of the weak. Ironically, also, there are advocates for international law which kind of pose it against the strength of the state.
1: And it is just currently kind of how it's framed. As right. we talk about all of these international treaties right now, it tends to be the left is, is viewing it as a restraint on our power and the right, right. is viewing it as, as too, too restrictive, too and restricted. so they, they reject it.
0: And, and I think the interesting thing and in what you can draw from this is how major powers viewed international law as something that they could kind of control and deploy in their favor and not simply in a cynical sense but in the sense of how they viewed war needing to progress and how war was safest and these powers used international law in that way in order to kind of impose their vision of what war should be like and so in this sense i think what we can think of here is that international law can actually be a very powerful tool in the regulation of warfare
1: indeed so we have both international law reflecting what what we want war to be and also perhaps to keep at bay what we fear war might become right Uh, in both cases, it's certainly reflecting the recent experiences uh, towards that, and you can you can clearly see you know why they came to these. These, these aren't esoteric, out of time uh, experiences. It's, it's based off of either the late nineteenth century, and you said maybe even going all the way back to you know the Napoleonic period, really, mm. uh, and then World War Two. So as we see. Conflict, you know, there's there's discussions about whether the character of warfare is, you know, the war is changing. But uh, with our own time periods, now that we see that these things change and are not immutable, what sorts of conditions do you see in the future that would lead to another wholesale change in, you know, in in international law and how we regulate war? uh and you know, what, what could be the watershed moment coming up and what would precipitate that? And what might it look like?
0: Well, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a good question. It's a, also, an, at one level, an impossible question to answer, of course. Uh, but I mean, I think what, thinking back to this moment that we looked at in this, this discussion, I mean, it's coming out of a broader consensus around the authority of the state and a broader consensus around sovereignty that exists, and it is quite powerful and strong, and then is later kind of codified into international law. And so the question is, I think for us today, is will we see a reassertion of the authority of the state, okay, and the kind of centrality of the state and sovereignty in terms of warfare, but also more broadly in society in various ways. I mean, in some ways, you can look at the you know, period since the 1970s as a build-down of the authority of the state. And then in some senses, maybe you, think, you ask yourself, well, maybe this is kind of caught up with the inability to control warfare in a way. Mm. And so the question is, what could be the moment at which you, know, you have this development of a kind of restoration of the authority of the state, uh, that I don't know.
1: Uh, and it, it's fascinating to think about whether, you know, there is a international consensus upon it and you can see perhaps uh, a splintering right. of, of, of the states versus the, the, uh, some of the non-states as, as we certainly see with, uh, although even, you know, with ISIS, it's interesting that they, they want to gain those state-like you right. know, characteristics. Right. That would precisely put them in jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as with many things in history, uh, irony uh, is is abundant all around. And so this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jonathan Gums, for coming into the War Room and, and sharing some of your perspectives on these things with us. Thanks for having me, JP. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace,
0: the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service.